0: Be inspired, supported, and empowered. This is the Global Healthy Living Foundation Podcast Network.
1: Four years ago, this new line of treatments came out that were monthly injections. And my neurologist worked with me to get me on those. As soon as they came out, she worked with my insurance company. She did a great job. And that was when my life started to change.
2: Welcome to Talking Head Pain, the podcast that confronts head pain head on. Hi, I'm Joe Coe, Director of Education Digital Strategy at the Global Healthy Living Foundation and a migraine patient for over 20 years. I'm here with a dear friend, Emily Klein. She's a professor of education at Montclair State. She's an activist, a mother, and an all around great member of our local community. And I'm so delighted that she has joined me today on Talking Head Pain. So, hi, Emily. How are you doing today?
1: Thanks, Joe. I'm doing great. How are you?
2: I can't complain. I like to hop in and ask people a similar question. Can you describe what your worst migraine attack was like? What went through your head and what did it make you feel?
1: My worst migraine attack happened after I'd started moving from sort of monthly migraines to intractable migraines. And this one lasted about three months. And I went on repeated rounds of steroids. I remember what went through my head was utter panic that this was the state of my life that I was going to be living with forever, that I would not be able to keep my job and I would not be able to raise my child. I have a real memory of sitting in the shower, like trying to take a shower, sitting in the bottom of the shower and throwing up and really thinking, I don't know how I'm going to get to the next moment.
2: Oh, you! wow. You brought up a lot that I think our <laughs> listeners can really relate to the life impact career Uh, Being a mom. What did migraine take from you before you got it under control?
1: Migraine took away from me for years, really, any belief that I could take a risk professionally, that I had to be very, very careful about doing only the bare minimum that I could do in my job. That was really profound. I mean, I was very lucky that I had tenure when this really started to get bad. And so I had some job security, but, you know, I was a pretty ambitious person in a lot of ways. And for a bunch of years, I really was afraid to do anything creative, risk-taking, become more activist in my work because of the implications I just didn't know. If I was going to be able to get up and function, I would say it took away a lot of my confidence as a parent too. I was really, really scared that I wasn't going to be able to parent my child and that my child would be really harmed by growing up with a mother who couldn't function. And so there were literally days where I would be like throwing up and trying desperately to get it together to like go to pick up and not say that I was in incredible pain.
2: Where did you find support and how did you get through those moments?
1: I will say there were a couple of things. One, I have... I had a friend from high school who had been going through something very similar. So I found some other people. I didn't know that an intractable migraine existed. So I found some other people who had gone through this that was really helpful for me. Um, Social media was really helpful for me in that. Like I could hear from large numbers of people all around the world who were going through something that was really similar. And I had a neurologist after a couple of failed attempts at finding neurologists who worked well with me. I found my current neurologist um, who is amazing. And her attitude of, we will just keep trying was really, really helpful and really important to me because I was in a state of despair. I was like, this is, I mean, we've tried everything. There's nothing left. So that feeling of having someone who said like, we are going to figure this out at some point was really, really important to me.
2: How are you doing today after being with that neurologist?
1: I would say it's almost, it's got to be about 10 years now since that first intractable migraine. I am doing really well. I would say that I am... Very functional. That doesn't mean I don't have headaches or migraines. They are part of my life, but my neurologist and I have moved to once every six months, which was a big step from every, you know, literally at some point it was like every month, you know, and then every two months, three months. We've moved to every six month check ins. They they tend to be very quick. I haven't had to adjust a medication in a long time. I just finished writing my third book. I took on a new position at work. I just got a new grant. So I've been able to add back all of these things professionally that were really important to me. I have a great relationship with my 14-year-old who does sometimes make fun of me for often saying that I'm tired, but I think sees me as a pretty functional, healthy person. I exercise every day. I've run races. I'm in physically good, good shape and I see friends. So all of the things that I really thought my life were over for me are very much a part of my life now.
2: I think that's so important for people to hear Emily, because I think a lot of us, and I've talked about this a little bit in the past that we settle when we have a chronic disease and we don't realize, we don't even realize that we're settling until we get the push from that neurologist in your case, or the friend or social media. And we could often do a lot better than what we're doing if we get the right provider and the right treatments.
1: Yes. And you know, it's, I say that I felt like at some point, and I actually wrote about this a little bit, that my life was shrinking, like it was shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. My life kept getting smaller and smaller because I was so afraid of pain. I mean, pain is, you know, I don't know how to explain what pain does to you psychologically, emotionally, physically, on every level. Um, And it's almost impossible to explain, like, you just want to not be in pain, right? So you're not existing in a state of wanting something to happen for you. You're really existing in the state of, like, I want this bad thing not to happen, you know? So I feel now that my life is expanding again, and that's been incredibly powerful. And I was really, really hopeless for a while.
2: How long did it take to get to a place where you feel like your life is expanding? How many treatments did you have to try? What went through your head, your neurologist's head? How did you tackle this problem?
1: I have been on a cusp, I think, of really new treatments that didn't exist 10 years ago when I started. So I literally have gone through the non-medication treatments, right? Everything from chiropractor and reflexology to acupuncture, yoga, every kind of massage, sacral, Reiki. I did the whole thing. I did every elimination diet. And I did them for long periods of time. I've been paleo, I've been gluten-free, I've been, you know, every single one that, you know, nightshades, the whole nine yards, some crazy ones in there as well. Um, Intermittent fasting, the whole, I tried everything that I could think of related to that, supplements, things like that, magnesium, CQ10, first line treatments that they will give you for rescue medications, you know, some that are sort of injections or pills that turned out I couldn't take because I would get nausea so they then we tried the injections and then the nausea and the vomiting was so bad that i would often end up in the emergency room not so much from the pain which was horrible but you know i could sort of live in a cave in my head but the 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 nausea and, and vomiting would get so bad that i would become severely dehydrated and so sometimes after about 24 hours i would go into the emergency room and i had all sorts of severe daily anti-inflammatories that we tried and and all the stuff that we had in our packet, right, for trying with migraines. And I had tried a bunch of those and I had one neurologist who was like, I just want you to come off everything completely. And I was like, okay, but I have to be able to like, what's going to happen when I'm in the hospital, right? That was really terrifying for me. So I went to my neurologist and she was like, okay, we're not going to do that because you have to have something to keep you managing through an an acute and chronic thing and that was when we were trying now then steroids rounds and rounds after steroids and at one point we thought okay we're gonna have to put me in the hospital for 72 hours for an iv steroid course and my internist was like i really don't want you to do that i'm very nervous for you physically and emotionally what what that would look like and at that point that one broke but it was then about another four years of on and off trying every single thing daily medications that made me lose language, which was very hard when you're a professor. And I, you know, I was good at like making jokes. You know, I'd go in and I'd be like, what's that thing? You call it with the kids in the classroom teaching, you know? And so I was really trying to figure out like how to use humor to get around the fact that I had lost all this language. And then about four years ago, this new line of treatments came out that were monthly injections. And my neurologist worked with me to get me on those as soon as they came out. She worked with my insurance company. She did a great job. And that was when my life started to change.
2: Amazing. And it's something that I just, it's hopeful because there are a lot of people who haven't gotten to that point yet where they're even, some people don't know that these newer medications exist.
1: And I remember my neurologist reminding me that it was a, that a migraine is a neurological event, um, because you forget that, and so it affects all these different centers of your body in ways that are really profound. And it does feel like a mini stroke in some ways, and in some cases, and the world is really trippy. I mean, it's just bizarre when you're in it. And you know, some of us get migraines without the pain, which I've had. Often I'll get the secondary symptoms before the pain comes, and then I'm like rushing to get to a cold room and bathe myself in ice. But yeah, I mean, I will say I had cobbled together and I have cobbled together many, many different strategies. I have daily medications. I exercise every day. I'm very careful about caffeine and water and hydration and certain supplements. All of that stuff is really, really good. Um, And I don't want to underestimate it, but there are these new medications that are coming out all the time. And one of the first things I always say to people is you have to be in with a really good neurologist who is paying attention to this stuff and trying you on the newest, latest things, because really the research in this area has expanded tremendously in the last couple of years. And it makes such a difference for someone to say, There's something else in my pocket. If this doesn't work, I've got something else in my pocket. And I think too often people get the message that there's nothing left for them to try.
2: so important, and it's something I relate to. We have a lot of life to live, and we, you know, don't want our worlds to shrink, as you said, Emily. And it's important to figure out how we take care of ourselves and, You know, you mentioned all the different ways from finding the right physician to looking at the right types of self-care that work for you from a mind, body, and and physical perspective. So I think that's really important for us to hear. And I appreciate that. I want to talk a little bit more about being a mom and living with migraine. How did you discuss migraine with your child?
1: Yeah, it's a tough one. You know, I grew up with a mom who was sick like really severely ill. And so I was always very afraid that my kid would think of me as a sick person and that that would become the sort of primary identity that really scared me, right? So in some ways, I think there were years where I overcorrected, where I just did not tell them anything And I really kept it such a secret and was able to sort of pretend otherwise between I had a babysitter who would help me. There were days where I would get Sam on the bus, go to the hospital, spend the day in the emergency room with IVs, and then pick them up from school. And I was really terrified of that. So now over the last couple of years, I've started to talk more openly with Sam about having migraines because I don't think it's a thing to be ashamed of. <laughs> and I want them to have an understanding of how invisible illnesses and disabilities may be around them all the time, and that people need extra support and care around that, right? And so now we do talk about that. And I try to balance the times where I may need extra help with the look at how resilient and tough your mom is with the, our bodies don't always do what we want them to do. And we are more than our body. We're more than our illness. We're more than our disability, but all of those are also really important to our identities as well. So, you know, I try to talk about all of that um, and it's complicated, right? And especially in adolescence, it's almost impossible to imagine that your body doesn't work really well all the time. On the other hand, teens understand a lot bodies doing things that they don't want them to do.
2: (laughs) That is true. Teaching with migraine and the pandemic and the stress of shifting targets when it comes to how educators are educating, how did that impact your disease? And is Did that provide more opportunities or less for you to talk about it with students? Did you see more people talk about uh, disability and chronic disease like migraine?
1: Yeah, it's been a hard journey for me. So I'll tell you the good and the bad. In the bad level, one of the first years where this got bad, I think it was that first year, I mentioned to a class that I had, a doctoral level class that I was struggling with migraines and there there were days when I'd come in and I'd say, I'm doing my best today, but I'm, I'm struggling with migraines. And I remember I got one student review, anonymous review that said it was pretty disappointing to get a professor who was never at her best. It would have been really interesting had she not had all of these A, B, and C issues. And it really hurt me and it scared me, right? Because it's always your biggest fear that people will see you as inadequate if you're admitting to or coming to terms with that. But that was 10 years ago. And I'm, you know, listen, I'm 50 years old. I have a lot of expertise and wisdom now, and I feel pretty confident in who I am and the work that I do and how good it is. So that helps me a lot, and. I have also thought over time that we do a disservice to our students if we don't talk about and become transparent about human moments. That doesn't mean that we're not working very hard and trying to bring our best and whatever, but I do think that's important. And during the pandemic, we were all struggling. So to make transparent listen, I'm showing up here at my best, but there are all these ways in which I'm struggling. And I came off one of my last daily medications during the pandemic when I had the time really in those first couple of months to see what happened if I wasn't taking a quarter of this dose or something. I wasn't saying that to my students, but I was certainly talking about how my body was feeling. We did a lot of check-ins around stuff like that. And then part of the problem with Zoom and people with migraines is that uh, Zoom made migraines really bad. So my headaches and my I have a herniated disc in my neck. They got very bad during, during that period. And I had a lot of daily headaches, which were, were really tough. And so we did talk about that. We talked about eye breaks, things that we could do for our eyes. A couple of times, I always talk about my migraines now that I suffer from chronic migraine and that there may be some days if we're on zoom, there may be some days where that's a struggle. And I had a couple of stu- I had a couple of students who would say, I'm getting a migraine. I'm going to turn off my camera and lie down, but I'm still here. <laughs> And I know I would always say, listen, you know, you actually get to get off zoom. If you're having a migraine, you don't have to stay in class if you're in the middle of a migraine. And they'd say no I feel pretty comfortable doing just that and I just want to listen and I understand that as well because when I'm in the middle of a pain attack. I love to listen to audiobooks or anything that can both help my part of my brain manage my body a little bit so you know, I had that happen with students and I certainly understand it. So I think we went through all kinds of stuff, but a lot of it was just figuring out how to pay attention to our bodies in new ways and adjust to the incredible stress that we were all under, which affects our bodies in many different ways. Even though stress is not, I wanna emphasize like, It is not that you have migraines because you are stressed out. That used to drive me crazy. I mean, I am stressed out, but it has nothing to do with why I have migraines. Stress can contribute or make worse the migraine, but I have plenty of days where I'm on vacation and feeling great and I'm still getting migraine.
2: There's a, I don't know who said this, but a really smart person was talking about cause and triggers when it comes to migraine and stress is a trigger. And you think about it as a glass of water and the triggers, you're just adding a drop, adding a drop, and then it overflows. And that's the migraine attack. And for some of us, we start with half a glass every day. Some of us, a quarter of a glass. Some of us, if you're in chronic or intractable migraine, you're already at the brim. So anything can put you over and continue that. That pain and agony.
1: Absolutely. I remember this is when I left one of my last neurologists. I was in this intractable migraine. I went to this doctor and he said, you have to give up caffeine. And I drank, you know, two solid cups of caffeine a day. And I was already in an intractable migraine. And I was like, and he was like, you have to stop cold Turkey. And I literally thought I was going to die. I mean, it was so awful. It was really like, maybe this isn't exactly how we do it. When we're in the middle of a most, the most acute thing that you can be in, you know? So yeah, I really relate to that, what you just said.
2: I start doctor's appointments with new ones. Like, listen, I'll do a lot, but don't tell me I can't have coffee.
1: A hundred percent. Like
2: that's the non-negotiable <laughs> in my life. Like I'll adjust <laughs> a lot, but I need the coffee. Life is not worth it if I can't have it. I mean, I say that now, who knows, but-
1: No, I, I mean, and I think that, you know, there are people- who are trying to live this perfect life and it becomes so internalized, you know, and I I tend to think of that as a very Western thing that we internalize that it's all about the individual. If you only did all the things that you were supposed to do, you wouldn't have disease or illness, it wouldn't exist. And so we tend to blame the individual instead of their, First of all, it's very complex and we have to live a life, right? And it has to have some joy too. And whatever your joy looks like, um, and my daily cup of coffee is part of my joy. When I like get out my Wordle, I put on NPR and I start to listen, you know, that's part of my joy. So, you know, you do have to balance people's real lives and real selves against this. And we also can't blame everything on individual choice.
2: Managing triggers can be a difficult or impossible task for a lot of us. I asked Dr. McAllister to explain how he talks to patients about managing their triggers.
0: Well, it's interesting in that many of the things that we thought were triggers all these years turned out not to be triggers so much, but just associations. For example, eating some chocolate was much maligned in the migraine community. Oh, you can't have chocolate, it'll trigger your migraine. Turns out that's by and large not true. Many women have menstrual migraine, we know that, Many women crave chocolate as a hormonal change around their period. And then if you have chocolate around your period, when you're gonna get your migraine anyway, you incorrectly start blaming chocolate. And some fascinating work done up at Harvard University suggested that many of the old things that we thought were triggers are not so much. There used to be, when I first started Whole diets of things to avoid if you had migraines. We'd hand out a list and it would have nuts and it would have red wine vinegar and chocolate and 30 other things. And that kind of took away the fun of eating, in my opinion. It turns out that some people can have a food or other trigger, but it's a what we call N of one experiment, meaning it varies from patient to patient. If you happen to know that. Every time the barometric pressure comes in, you get a headache. That's probably a trigger for you. If you know that onions consistently give you a headache, that's probably a trigger for you, but it doesn't mean you have to avoid lots of things because at one point we thought they might've been triggers.
2: What would you tell someone who's in despair, listening right now, and is not on the right treatment?
1: Yeah, it's, it's really hard because when you're there is always the time when it's Hardest to reach out for more, right? It's hardest to do to make any change. I really, really think you have to have a doctor that you trust. I just I really do. And so you need to interview doctors and you know, bring a friend with you when you interview your doctors as well. If you're feeling like you just can't do it, there were times when I would say to my friends, like, make sure that I schedule through doctor's appointments this week. I just need someone to make me do it. Somehow the scheduling and getting there. You know, I can cancel it, like one of three things that I schedule in general. Um, and so getting someone to help you um, get in and get the care you need with someone that you trust, who, with someone who is convinced that they can help you too. If someone tells you that they cannot help you, that they're out of options for you, then that's on them, but it's just not the case. And to be really easy on yourself when you're in the acute and trying to fix period, right? Part of the problem is with any medication, you have to try things for a couple of months. And so it's very tempting to say after like two weeks or a week, this isn't working. I know it's not working. And even with my monthly injectable now, the first couple of months, I felt like it was getting better. And then I went to my neurologist and I'm like, I think I'm seeing a change, but I'm not sure. And it's still not enough. It's doubled my dose. And since then it's been golden. I really went from daily migraines down to, you know, maybe once a month, right? So that's a life-changing thing. And so, you know, to keep giving feedback and be honest, I think a lot of us try to please our doctors and tell them what we think they wanna hear. And it's okay to push back a little bit and say like, it's a little better, but it's not enough better. This is not enough better and keep playing and be patient. And I would sometimes put it in my calendar. Like, okay, I started this on this. I am not going to make a decision about how it works for two months. Whatever the doctor tells me is like, we really won't know for two months, and then I'm gonna put it out of my head. So I'm not going to, after three days, go into a fit of despair because it's not on my calendar. I'm not supposed to feel despair for two months. I'm just gonna suspend disbelief until I get to that point.
2: As Emily points out, it's important to give medications time to work. Dr. McAllister shares advice on navigating this wait and see period.
0: When I'm starting a patient on a new treatment, particularly a preventive treatment, it really depends on the type of treatment. And we can divide the world in terms of new and old treatment. New means post 2018, with the first of the monoclonal CGRP first shots and now the CGRP pills. Those new drugs work pretty darn fast. Some people, they work as soon as a day or two after you start them, many in a week, most in a month, But even those I'll give a couple of months just to be sure because there's always a bell-shaped curve of life and some people are gonna be a little slow. Contrast that with the old migraine meds, topiramate, amitriptyline, the beta blockers. They took every bit of six weeks or more to even start working. And we'd have to give those at least three, four, five, even six months before we were certain. With Botox injections, we didn't see the big change in until after two cycles, right? So that was 24 weeks in. I still use the old meds, I still use plenty of Botox, but one of the many nice things about these post 2018 meds is they're fast. So you can kind of know within weeks or a month or so in most of your patients, whether you're getting somewhere. And that's really nice.
2: I love that technique. I, I haven't thought about that. It makes a lot of sense. I'm not that organized. So I appreciate people that are that organized <laughs> that are going to put it in their calendar and be like, I am not going to say this sucks until I gave it enough time to decide if it sucks or not. I love that. Was there anything that I didn't ask you, Emily, that you would want me to ask?
1: I would say the the last thing is it's really tricky with friends. And I think that everyone's had a headache and I get a lot of, I don't know how you do it. And that does sometimes make me feel better because sometimes I'm like, yeah, I am amazing. (laughs) I am, I am working very hard. On the other hand, people do not want to hear about your pain every single day. Right. And so being judicious around that so that you get enough support without feeling isolated, but not also then driving everyone around you crazy is a really tough line. Um, and it's hard to fix. It really is because when you're in pain, you don't want to talk about anything, but how much pain you're in. So I've really struggled with that. I don't have answers. I'm sure you have other guests who can come in and answer that a lot, but it is something that I think all of us who struggle with migraine disease really pay attention to.
2: Well, Emily, thank you so much for joining me on talking head pain. I, I love talking to you and I like talking about this stuff with you even more. It was a really, really interesting discussion, and I think folks will get a lot out of it. So thank you. I really
1: appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on today.
2: My Pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Talking Head Pain, the podcast that confronts head pain head on. If you like this episode, please give it an honest five-star rating and subscribe so you never miss another one. I'm Joe Coe, and I will see you next time. This season of talking head pain was made possible with support from Amgen, a sponsor of the Global Healthy Living Foundation.
0: Be inspired, supported, and empowered. This is the Global Healthy Living Foundation Podcast Network.